When you think of lead generation, you might imagine churning out a quick return on a clever Facebook ad with an affiliate link. But for Anthony Sarandria, founder of SiteFlood, it's an opportunity to build a lifetime relationship and create real value, both for his business clients and for the customers he can introduce them to. In this episode of Hack the Process, Anthony will tell us why he expanded his successful lead generation business into an information resource, what delegating tasks taught him about leadership and entrepreneurship, and how his concept of mentorship shifted once he started reaching out to the people he admired for advice. Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. So today I'm speaking with Anthony Sarandrea. He is the founder of SiteFlood, and he's a lead generation entrepreneur. Anthony, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, brother. Thanks for having me on. Excited to chat. Yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting with you, too. Lead generation is something a lot of people talk about, and I'm curious what your take is on it. How did you get involved with lead generation? You know, it's, uh, I think a lot of people do a lot in uh, drop shipping or e-commerce, things like that. And I had friends that had cash flow issues or supplier issues and all this, and it, it really sounded like a drag in a lot of ways or a lot of work, but I still wanted to be involved in driving a high number of customers at scale. That's really where we landed on, you know, spaces and things where there's thousands of call center reps or they're able to take on mass quantities like a Geico or an Allstate are able to take on mass quantities of customers per day. So scale wouldn't be an issue. And then theoretically cash flow and some other things as well as actually driving that. But yeah, getting into it was really just, you know, we were a great marketing shop, marketing agency, realized we were doing really good for our clients and said, okay, how how can we do that at scale and in a productization model outside of a service-based model that a lot of internet marketing agencies do and, and stick with forever? So how do you mean by productization in terms of lead generation? Okay, great question. So most internet marketing agencies really, you know, sell on, say, they'll say, hey, Dave, you know, $5,000 a month to do SEO for you, or, you know, we'll, we'll manage 10% of your ad spend. And here we came along and said, hey, every customer we send you, will you pay us? And it became a highly attractive offer for a lot of companies because now instead of, you know, paying some guy 20 grand a month to do, you know, SEO and hope that it works on the site, we were now saying, hey, every customer you, you we drive you, we give us $200. And they were like, yeah, we make, you know, $250 every customer. We'll do that all day long. So essentially, that's where I'm getting at with the, with the productization versus, you know, service-based model. Okay, and I can see how that could work in a situation where your customers are people who really understand how much each lead that they generate is worth. Correct. And, you know, a lot of it is, to your point, if you're moving out, if, if, you know, somebody who, a company who, or partnership that doesn't understand their lifetime value, things like that, like, that's some stuff you'd be shocked even these bigger companies have problems with attributing is actual lifetime value of a customer coming in there, which, you know, can go in your favor or against it, most of the time against it. So really helping them understand, you know, even just simple conversations like, well, how much do they pay you per month? What does that kind of work out to you in your pocket after expenses? Got it. How long do they stay on as a customer per month? Or how many times do they pay you or reorder? And, you know, kind of walking them into it and be like, got it. Okay, so the customer's not worth $40. They're worth $150 to you. And they're like, yeah, I guess so. You know, so, and you'd be shocked how many businesses, even at a massive scale, don't actually know their lifetime value of their customer and know those metrics. Yeah, I imagine that a lot of your business does come down to that kind of consulting with people to make sure that they understand the value proposition that you're offering. 
Yeah, you, you, you got it. We found that the person on the other side of the party or the relationship is equally, if not more important than, you know, anything else. I remember we, when we had our agency, we were, we were running ads for some big app development shops. And we literally copy and pasted the exact same campaign for two different shops that were both competitors. One guy was printing $4 for every dollar he spent in profit and trackably, and the other the other person didn't close a single deal in five months. And, you know, the, the variable was not that it was bad ads or that uh, we weren't doing a good job. It was that, uh, you know, their sales process wasn't wasn't good on the other side of the phone. So it was, it was a great a great lesson in understanding who you're partnering with, even if you're theoretically, you know, an agency or a commodity or, you know, if you, if you mow someone's lawn, like understanding, like you're offering them a ton of value too. You're not just a commodity or, you know, another network that they're working with, like you offer a lot of value to the customer as well too. Even if you don't necessarily think that you have the greatest value in a relationship, you can really kind of understand it from both sides of the table a lot easier for both parties to understand the, uh, I'd say the, what's going on in the relationship truly. I could see where it's important to structure a relationship, a deal like that, so that you're not being paid based on the sales that they generate, but based on the leads that you're bringing in. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's tough because there's back and forth to that, right? It's like they need to be making money in order to continue to pay you. So as much as I want to be like agree with you on that, like theoretically, I, I need them to be making money. Not theoretically, I need them to be making money to continue to pay me. So even if their process sucks, I need to either go find someone whose process is great, or I really need to help them fine tune theirs. Because you know, I, I used to think, you know, kind of your comment there, where it'd be like, oh well, you know, they're paying us X per lead. Like I don't really care what happens after that. And well, then they stop paying you eventually. <laughs> <Which is laughs> Yeah, no, that's actually kind of what I was getting at, because it sounded like you were dealing with, in that particular scenario, you had a couple of customers, one of whom probably wasn't all that satisfied with the results. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, you got it. How did you get to the point where you were able to understand that lifetime value concept with the customers to the extent that you could explain it to your own potential clients? Yeah, it's a, it's a solid question because it, it started with a subscription for a software where they charged like $20 a month. And they'd be like, I need to drive a customer on your $20. And I remember being like, man, that's going to be tight. I don't know if we're going to be able to do that. And then thinking through and, and just like, oh, wow, like Netflix might only be, I don't even know how much Netflix is, eight bucks a month. But if you're on there for, you know, three years straight, you're not worth $7 to them. You're worth seven times three years times or, you know, times 12 months or whatever that is those payment terms and, and really trying to get that ceiling as high as possible for the acquisition cost threshold you can have in order to, to really bring on a customer. And really the, you know, the term he who can spend the most to acquire a customer wins really, I think, plays into favor more than most people really, businesses realize, vendors realize, and, and all of that. It's, it, it really, a lot of it does come down to how good the offer is and who can monetize the customer the best for who's able to, you know, go slap a Super Bowl commercial at halftime. Like the companies that can do that, it's because they have such a gross amount of lifetime value in a customer. And that's why you see insurance companies, credit card companies, things like that. Or they'll, you know, when you go watch the Super Bowl, I was like, got it. These are the people that make the most money. Otherwise they couldn't pay $5 million for a Super Bowl commercial to be like, cool, we did one, you know, and not track back how much money they made, they made on it. So really to answer your question, it was like working through the metrics of driving a customer and saying, wait, wait, wait. It, we're not going to be able to do this at 20 bucks. Why are some of the competitors able to pay $20 a click when you're telling me you need to drive a customer at $20 and, oh, they're looking at the lifetime value? And it explains one of the reasons why you see so many companies moving from a single single purchase business model to the subscription model where people are able to become lifetime customers and constantly be feeding into that payment. Yeah, you got it. I mean, it, it, it has higher multiples when, when the business goes to sell, things like that, because to your point, you're a lot more sticky. You're not a one-off, you know, you go buy, you know, a stationary bike in your home. Peloton makes you not only buy the stationary bike, but then you pay $40 a month. That's very, very sticky. That reoccurring income 
is, is really what it comes down to. Reoccurring is very, very exciting for, you know, for profitability, for uh, investors, for potential acquisitions, things like that. And you're, you're right, we're seeing a ton, a ton of companies moving more to a subscription model because they know they know the value of it. And really, you know, we're blessed because the Amazons of the world have really trained consumers to be okay with that. Like, I imagine, you know, 10, 10, with Amazon Prime and stuff like that, I remember, you know, I imagine 10, 15 years ago, you know, if I was getting hit every month with, with a charge, you know, I might get pissed, but the Amazons of the world have really, you know, no pun intended here, primed me, I guess, to be okay with getting those, those little amounts just hit my statement every single month. So, yeah, it's really paved the path, I think, a lot for a lot of businesses to get into the subscription business more than anything else, reoccurring uh, rebuild model. Actually, hearing the pun come out of your mouth, it occurs to me that might be the way that Amazon was thinking about and why they named it that. That's pretty hilarious. Very well could be. <laughs> and then joke's on us, I guess. <laughs> well, I, th- I think we all benefit from it, too, and Jeff Bezos certainly benefits at the top of the ladder. In your business, you're also benefiting from that as well because you're creating this ongoing relationship with your customers, although you're getting paid per lead that you bring in as opposed to having a relationship that's just based on having a subscription. Yeah, you know, it's indirectly based on that, to your point. Like, it bakes into what they're able to pay per lead, right? So if they didn't have a reoccurring, like a, a Geico didn't have reoccurring and they just charge you, you know, $300 a year versus $100 a month or $80 a month, whatever that is, you know, they might only be able to pay $10 a lead versus being able to pay $30 a lead. So indirectly to your point, it is a subscription model, even though if that's not exactly, you know, I'm not, I'm not seeing money hit the account. And even us, we're really working towards creating info products and things like that around subscription-based communities where people pay monthly, a couple bucks a month to be able to learn how to make money or save more money, put more money in their pocket. You know, that's our niche. Your niche can be whatever that is, trying to move towards that. And, you know, I, I imagine in the next, you and I touch base six months to a year now, that that will continue to make up more and more of our revenue stream or, or that's where we're headed towards because there, there's such value to that, I think, in my opinion. Now that's interesting. That sounds like a very unrelated model to the business model around generating leads for companies like Geico. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's some of the products that, that we're launching involve info before. And it, and it's so essentially the flow would look something like teaching you how to find, you know, the right auto insurance or how to actually save the most money in your day-to-day life. And one of the things in there is, is you know, to, to make sure you're checking your auto insurance quote. And I'm just using a silly example here, but that someone paying for that info and or getting it for free and then subscribing to an email newsletter, a Facebook group, whatever that looks like for $6 a month. And, you know, they're getting daily tips on how to save money, things like that. It's, it's really it's a step before actually driving someone as a lead. And then sometimes they're actually a stronger one because they understand the value props that a Geico offers because they bought info, an info product or content prior to that. So it still holds the value of the high scalability because it's still a digital product instead of being a lead now. It's, it's an info product. And then really it's just tacked on right on front of an actual lead being generated. And, it's a, you know, and again, we're roadmapping it out and, you know, we'll have to touch base in a few months. But ideally, you know, we, we imagine that this is really for a lot of lead generators, marketing agencies, you know, the number one value or what's what I'm looking for here. The most coveted thing right now is it's not oil, it's data. You know, I think for a lot of marketing professionals or agencies or even companies in general, I don't think value their data or their customer data or capture it or monetize it fully the way they, they should. It's really something I've been obsessed with over the last few months. We, we poured millions of dollars into testing and, you know, getting getting a flow out and, and things out to be able to actually, you know, capture a customer before shipping them off to someone else or even if you're, you know, a lawn mowing company, as a silly example, you know, 
how are you what are you doing with that data of your customer the leads coming in are you just are you calling them once are you not even picking up the phone when they come in or are you you know selling them multiple different products are you doing with that data is something I'd say everyone on listening to the podcast right now no matter what you're doing at it's like starting to become obsessed with the idea around data and the value of that and and you know how you can apply that to your business your idea whatever that is that's fascinating because it sounds to me like what you were doing was you were selling your leads to your customers, started to realize what the value of the data that you had from those customers and what it took to generate that tribe of customers. And now you're building info products for these customers that could end up becoming their own market themselves in addition to selling them to, to the clients that you have. You nailed it. Yeah, you got it on the head. Yeah, and the word I was looking for is, the, you know, the world's most valuable resource is no longer oil, it's data. And if you literally search that exact term. You'll get hundreds of articles that really dive deep into the to the value of that and, and all that good stuff. You know, we were really doing the heavy lifting. We were doing the biggest value to a company is, is you know, its growth engine is sales. And, you know, we were doing the hardest part, which is getting someone cold off the street to actually come in the door and come into the restaurant and sit down, you know. And, and don't get me wrong, there's massive value. So they need to have the chef. They need to have good food, good service at the restaurant. And this is kind of a silly analogy with COVID going on. But, um, it, you know, we, we were literally pulling someone off the street and getting them to sit in the chair. You know, but the thing is, we were sitting them down, and then we were going back out to go find another uh, another person to sit in the chair, versus saying, "Hey, before we get you in that chair, let's grab your info because we can match you with more restaurants that you like, just like the one you're about to go to." Okay, now let's get you in the chair, and then now you know we're talking to that customer daily on you know what they like to eat, where they like to go, why they like that restaurant, what restaurant would be better to fit them with. So it's a better experience for the customer. It results in longer lifetime value, and and it's a better customer journey, and it's better for the you know that that initial restaurant owner too, because that customer is a much stronger person coming in than you know just the analogy of off the street sitting down. They're they're, they're now someone who actually believes in and is educated through our brands daily, weekly, monthly, whatever that looks like, to really be excited about the Wagyu steak. And they're not, you know, they're not just sitting down and saying, oh, Wagyu. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, I understand exactly how it's made or where it comes from or everything. So they're, they're more willing to pay for it or buy more of it or whatever that is. So kind of a silly analogy along the way, but, but yeah, that, that's, that's essentially the roadmap we, we've laid out. Nope, not silly at all, and the metaphors were consistent. The thing that, that intrigues me about this is, what does your acquisition model look like now, and how has it changed compared to what it used to be? You see a Facebook ad, click on it. You see a page that says, call this number to get help with your auto insurance, and then you call the number, and you're routed directly to Geico. Boom, I'm, I get paid. You're gone. See ya, that's it. So uh, that that the challenge with that was, because I'm not talking to the customer in between, they're gone. So I, I you know I paid for them. And then I moved them and I got paid. It was very transactional. And then, you know, we uh, the iteration in between was started moving towards more, hey, if you want to learn more about auto insurance, you know, give us your info. And, I'm, again, I'm dumbing that down. But, okay, so now someone's giving me their email, giving me their phone number and permissions to text them or, or call them or whatever it is. And then now after you fill that out, now I'm shipping you over and I'm saying, okay, well, here's, you know, here's the exact person you should call based on the info you gave based on living in Arizona, California, wherever you are. Boom, now they're calling in, but now I've captured their info in between, and I can have conversations with them via email or text. And then, you know, the iteration that, that we're rolling out very heavily right now is essentially coming in, and now I say, hey, Dave, you know, download this free PDF or, you know, pay six bucks for this PDF to teach you, you know, how to make sure you're not getting scammed on your auto insurance or when you're looking for it. And now you're coming me, you're giving your info, and you say, now you're also giving me your credit card, and I'm saying, you know, for $7.95 a month, you know, we'll continue to send you money tips or not. And guess what? If there's one, cancel any time, if there's one month on there that you didn't save or make at least 10 bucks, 
we're gonna you know refund the entire thing, or you know I'll write you a twenty dollar check if if I didn't make you know if I didn't make you at least that in the time that that you paid me seven bucks a month, and then the flow we can continues the same. So now I've captured that, and now maybe you you've read the PDF, you've read the you know the ebook, or you're in the the Facebook community, and you know that number to call or that company to talk to is being referenced all throughout it. Except you're a lot more educated because you've theoretically learn what to look out for when looking for auto insurance companies. You've learned how much money you could be leaving on the table. Like, I've really done a lot of the, the work that a sales guy would have to do. So by the time they call, they go, hey, yep, you know, I, I know because I haven't checked my quote in the last four months. I'm definitely overpaying, so I'm really interested. I also own a home, just so you know. So that should hopefully give me a better rate. And if I bundle, bundle my life insurance, I know that's a good thing, too. And then the sales rep's like, uh, okay, let me take that info. So it, it ends up being a win-win-win across the board. Like I said, higher LTV better customer experience, and then better better actual, you know, product, which in this case was delivering a customer to the to the partner that we're working with. And those customers you're delivering are more highly qualified because they not only have a better understanding of what the business they're dealing with needs to know about them, but also what they should expect from that business. You nailed it right on the head. Fascinating. And the level of trust that people need in order to be able to give you that information, you're earning that by providing them with valuable information that they can use and guaranteeing that information. Absolutely. Or, you know, the offer is so good, you know. So, again, it's, you know, get a first free consultation call. Like, okay, there's not you know, my time. Like, I have to pay with my time, but no real money there. Okay, that's okay. Then, hey, you know, give me your info in order to get to the free blank, blank, blank. Okay, you know, I'm a little more protective of my info, but if you structure it right on the value prop and how much money I can save, maybe, you know, that's not too big of a friction. And then, to your point now, if I'm actually taking a credit card and I'm able to make guarantees or I'm able to make the no-brainer where I'm literally saying, I'll write you a check if you don't like this, and we do, it becomes a lot less friction. So now you're like, okay, fine, I'll pay, I don't mind paying eight bucks because Worst case scenario, I'm, I'm making 20 because I'm, I'm just going to tell them that they suck and I'm going to get 20 bucks back. And obviously that puts the pressure on someone like us or me to actually make sure that that person, you know, getting the value out of what they're paying for. But it does, to your point, it's, it's a no-brainer offer. And then that gets back to what I was talking about, like, now I'm the company. Now I'm the actual end servicer at that point in a, in a silly way, although that's not the end of their path with us. And, you know, is my offer strong enough to stand out from the crowd to actually acquire customers versus everybody else that's like 10% off or this? And it's like nobody, like, that doesn't, that doesn't click with, with users as much anymore. Like, it, now how do, you, how do you amplify, you know, your messaging to actually either talk to someone very deeply psychologically or you're talking to them where they are today? So you're saying, you know, are you tired of not being able to look your wife in the eyes because you're not able to take her out to dinner on Friday night? well, this auto insurance can help you put save that money so you can take your wife out at least once a month. Like, I'm reaching a little bit, but that's a psychological pull. Or is the offer so good, like some of the stuff I was just talking about, where it's a no-brainer, where it's like, okay, might as well give this a shot. It, it, it sounds like I'm going to come out on top anyway. That sounds like a fairly targeted message, but you have to do a lot of research into your customers in order to know what kind of message to target them with, with something like that. Yeah, you got it. I mean, it's one thing I, I am employed in, in myself or, or sketched into my schedule that I take very seriously is uh, calling my customers at least for an hour out of the week. And, you know, it, it has no agenda. I'm not trying to save a client. I'm not trying to upsell someone. I'm not trying to get a good review. Like, I literally have zero agenda on purpose because then they think it's a customer service call. The call goes something like, hey, Dave, I'm Anthony. You know, you, you came to my website, XYZ, and, and you contacted us. You know, I'm the owner, and I, I really just want to make sure we're providing the best service. I'd love to give you a $10 Starbucks gift card to just chat with me for 30 minutes or just some time. I don't know if you have any time right now, but I can literally, I can Venmo it to you right now. If you give me your email, I can send you, you know, an Amazon gift card. But 
Yeah, I'm really just, just kind of, you know, curious about you. Like, why did you come here? What were you doing? And now I'm asking such questions about their life that really seemingly don't don't even actually correlate. And that's where I'm learning, like, oh, my God, someone who just got divorced is, you know, going through financial hardships. Or, oh, my God, it's against the Bible to be indebted to creditors. You know, that a lot of my customers are religious. So, oh, well, let's go partner with some of the biggest megachurches in the world. Like, a lot of those end results came from literally me just picking up the phone and talking to someone who, if you were listening to this, you could argue isn't really my customer. They're really Geico's customer. But I'm telling you to view it as your customer. They are my customer. Even if Geico's their end, their end destination on their conversation, I'm the one that got in front of them and drove them. So, you know, looking, looking at them very much as that, I can really learn intimately who the people are calling or, or who the people are contacting us or coming to our site, where they are in life, what makes them stop their day to actually, like, look into what the hell I have to say to them is. And you start finding trends, and you really do, to your point, and then, and then you're able to, to understand and really have empathy, and then you're able to, you know, write messaging, sales copy, introduce products, have customer service conversations that really lead with that empathetic side and that empathy, which drives them to actually take action. So you're using it for good and, and, and you know, and always. As you describe how many people you're reaching out to and how much you're doing, I'm imagining one guy sitting behind a computer with 15 arms going in 15 different directions trying these things. What, what does the structure of your business look like? Because I know you're not a solopreneur. Yeah, we have a little over 30 employees, full-time employees on the company. I today, you know, spend most of my time watching strategy and then really being a cheerleader for my team. And I don't mean like, hey, good job, Jack, good job, good job, good job. Like, seriously, like that same empathy, understanding what's going to make Jack's day-to-day life easier, where he's having struggles and consistently having pulse checks on the different moving parts from a very high level. So my day is very much involved in strategy. So what kind of messaging are we going to have on our actual, on our ads or on our landing pages or our website, things like that? Are we going to move to the mo- some of the models we just talked about? That's the strategy portion. And then the flip side is really, you know, high value activities, which is sales. And for me, it's getting, you know, coming back to our earlier conversation earlier, making sure we have the right partners and partnerships lined up and, you know, having conversations with them and nurturing that relationship or, seeing if there are better partners for us to actually be sending customers to that are going to provide better for our customers, monetize it better, a number of different things. So I'm on the phone probably for seven hours out of the day, just having conversations with probably a pretty even split of the team or, you know, a potential partner or vendor or new products coming out, things like that. And then I try and spend, you know, realistically about 30 minutes a day just thinking. And it's, you know, I, I'm, I, my goal is to eventually literally stare at a wall for eight hours a day, which sounds silly, but you know, it's pretty much what Warren Buffett does today, and, and not because I, I like staring at a wall, but because I think as an entrepreneur, you, you have to move your time, free up your time as much as possible, because you're really paid to think, and your value is thinking, not doing. And I think for me, that clicking and, uh, sorry, the, the, the organization needs to be doing and doing a lot, but, you know, your job is to get out of the weeds as quick as possible, and that's obviously easier said than done here. But to get out of the get out of the way of the day to day moving part and be literally stare at a wall because that's where you see okay these are icebergs that are coming in our way here's here's different things that you know we need to be successful or you know that's really your highest value is kind of zooming out understanding the landscape and then zooming in and actually you know help, helping the team take action on it and uh, you know last thing I'll say on that point is I remember I was in a all day event and they said it was for entrepreneurs and they said if you can't sit here for eight hours without your business pulling you out of here you create yourself a job, not a business. And I remember that being like such a real moment because I thought I was on top of the world. I had you know, two, three employees. We were pushing good numbers, making great money. And I was like, you know, I'm the man. I'm doing great. And throughout that day, I had to step out like three or four times. And I was so gosh darn embarrassed 
uh, not to other people, but to myself, that because it was it was like a slap in the face. I realized exactly what the moderator said. They said I created a job. I didn't create a business, and uh, that irked me enough to you know. And we could talk for hours on how to tactically get out of that, but that irked me enough to finally figure out how the hell to get out of actually doing the day to day of the work. Well, I'd settle for talking for a few minutes about that, because that definitely is a challenge for a lot of people, especially folks, I think, like yourself, who tend to want to take on a lot by themselves and are very enthusiastic and go-getters and get things done and get things started. That delegation, that sense of how do you get somebody on board and teach them to do things to the point that you can step back and not do it yourself. How did you get yourself over that hurdle? Yeah, I guess there's a, there's a handful of things. I think I think first one, and this is the easiest part of it, getting shit off my plate I didn't like to do. That was very easy. I didn't like bookkeeping. I didn't like accounting. Easy. I didn't like scheduling my own appointment. Easy. Done. That's easy. And I think that's easy for a lot of entrepreneurs. And it feels good. You're like, wow, okay, this person became addicting. You know, I was paying my assistant, you know, 10 hours a week. I was like, whoa, that's 10 hours. I would have been doing that shit. Whoa, okay, that's awesome. Like, whoa, I'm putting more time in my pocket. That feels good. That's easy. Where it gets harder is when you start you start seeing things that you know you're great at, and that's, you, you know, there's the E-Myth is the book where the baker eventually, everyone says you need to open a bakery, and she ends up hating her life because she realized being a baker and a business owner are two separate things, and I think, you know, a lot of us, including myself, started as great bakers, and then they open up a bakery, and until that switches in your head, like, hey, you are no longer in the business of being a great baker. Your, your purpose and day-to-day should not be focused on being a great baker. It should be focused on being a great owner of a bakery and finding other great bakers that want to be bakers and, and really understanding that. So, you know, kind of what that looks like tactically is looking at two projects. So for me, it was, you know, running Facebook ads or talking to potential partnerships, right? And they're both very high value. And it's, it's really, it was really hard because short-term running Facebook ads as efficiently as possible brings in the most money. And I think that's where people get stuck. They find that's a high-value thing that brings in the most money today, but I knew long-term what was going to bring in the most money in the door, make the biggest impact or grow the company, was to be finding the right partners that can actually take the call. So apply this to wherever anyone listening is in their business today. And the really hard thing is saying, got it, I need to forego the short-term high-value activity for the 5% higher high-value activity, and I need to focus on that. And it's not necessarily overnight. I'm saying, you know, this the thing, making the money today. But uh, that was a big turning point for me. And then I've really got two other ones. Uh, the second one was I had a great mentor of mine tell me, he said, if you can hire someone, and this is for everybody that's a control freak listening or have trouble rel- relinquishing control, uh, including myself, is if you can hire someone that can do something 70% as good as you, that should be the goal. And for me, it was like that immediately, like, <sighs> I was like, oh, okay, because what kept happening is I would hire someone in this scenario to do Facebook ads, and they weren't as good as me. And I'd be like, well, I need to be doing this because they're not as good as me. And the reality was that I'm always going to be in the rat race because I'm always going to be chasing my tail, and I'm always going to be running Facebook ads, and I'm going to be a great Facebook ad guy, which is fine if you don't want to be an entrepreneur or run a business. I truly mean that. That's okay. But if your end goal is to make more and more impact, grow a team, get more customers, make more, whatever that is, change an industry, make more money, whatever that is driving you, you're going to plateau if you stop there. So that like realization that, wow, someone 70% as good as me at something is the goal. It became a lot easier when someone came out. I was like, they're not as good as me. I was like, well, they're about 70% as good as me. And like, even if it was like a bullshit, like ego pat on the back to me or to, you know, a business owner, you're like, oh, it's, it's cool. They're only 70%. Like that was enough to get me the hell out of my own way or the business's way and stop doing that stuff. And it's funny because now I'm the greatest, you know, strategic thinker 
and these guys running my Facebook ads today are 10 times better than I am right now. And that doesn't mean I couldn't jump back in and get good again and stuff, but that was a very important turning point. And then the last thing I'll say that I think rounds out this, you know, how to get out of the rat race is, you know, what are you doing all this for? And starting there, and, you know, Simon Sinek has a great start with why, but really it comes down to painting and laying out the vision for the team so that you have a ton of intrapreneurs, or at least this was my path. It doesn't mean every company works this way, but for me, it was never about driving a great car or making millions of dollars. It was about, I literally, I think you and I talked before this, I, I wanted to help people lose weight, and I realized that in order for people to lose weight, they needed to have the finances in order to be able to afford healthy food or to have to work two jobs to be able to actually work out at night and all these things. So I said, oh my gosh, I need to fix someone's finances to help them lose weight. And that was my why. And, you know, I'm blessed because I got to realize that financial struggles really play into someone's, you know, divorce, anxiety, depression, suicide, all these other major issues in the world. Financial struggles are at the top of it. So for us, introducing financial products that help people save money or make money, it, we're really actually stopping divorce. We're actually really helping, to, you know, get rid of suicide in this country. And, like, that's the why. So that was the conversation I had with potential people that wanted to work on the team or to get people on board. And all of a sudden, you know, A-plus players were taking massive pay cuts because they felt alive working here and they felt a purpose and they felt like they're actually waking up every day and excited about what they're doing, even though they were, they're were they actually doing the exact same trinkets they would be doing at another company running Facebook ads. But here, they're helping people, you know, get out of, you know, not, not commit suicide. And it's like, well, how does that equate to auto insurance? Well, it does, because people can save money, and then they can be happier with their life, blah, 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 and all this other stuff. And, you know, you kind of go down that rabbit hole. But really painting that vision is very important, because now I had, especially early on, going from one person to two to three to four to five, you really need people that are really have the same level of care as you do for the business. Otherwise, it's darn near impossible to get off the ground. So I had all these guys that were working as if they were, you know, they owned the business, even if they didn't own any equity or they weren't getting paid very high. But they were busting their ass and they believed in what the heck was going on. And I, I think that's a very unquantifiable thing that you can't quantify it on a resume or when you're hiring someone or anything like that to be able to feel and see. And it really starts with you being able to paint that. But I think that is absolutely necessary in order to move you from, you know, yourself to two people to three people to four people to five people, especially early on. I really think it's it's so important to hire based on those skill sets versus someone's experience. And, you know, now we're at a bigger size. We're now, I've leveled that a little bit more, not a ton, but I put more weight into someone who has experience, been doing this a long time, all this, but they still need to align with that same on-fireness of what we're doing. Otherwise, they know it's not going to be sustainable. They're going to be looking for other jobs. They're not going to do their job well. They're not going to be thinking about this late at night. It's all that good stuff. But I think those are all, I know that was a little bit of a ramble session, and I told you hours, and I hopefully crammed some of that into minutes. But that's really what I think is in order to go from, you know, a solopreneur to an actual team. Those are all really vital parts, excuse me. So many valuable pieces in there. One of the things that really stood out for me was you were talking about the challenge of trying to bring on people who may only be 70% as good at you as you as you are at some things. But I think there's a, there's a sense of where leaders really come to the surface is where they start seeing those people who are 70% as good at doing things the way that they would do them. But they get so much gratification out of watching those people grow and develop into people who do things 20% better than they ever could in a different way. 
Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, what, what you just said is, you know, investing in people having a long-term mindset versus short-term mindset. So, uh, you know, short-term thinker thinks, well, if I teach this guy how to do everything, he might leave. Well, what happens if, you know, I, I pay for him to go to a conference or I get him a really nice computer to be able to work on and then, you know, he goes gets a job somewhere else or what happens if he, you know, all these things, all steals for me, all these, it's a very short-term minded thinker where if you approach it and you're, you know, I'm wrong most of the time and you know sometimes it doesn't work out this way and someone does leave or they do steal from the company or they do take the computer and run but the most critical thing I can do is continue to think long term which to your point is how do I invest in my team how do I invest in people so you know even with with my second person you know on the team the bookkeeper which is really an assistant was the first hire it was like how are they doing how are you doing are you are you happy with what you're doing I, I got you lunch today like even like little things like that when that was all I could afford or I had even just asking how the heck they're doing, how's their, you know, their boyfriend doing or their husband, you know, and these little things that really like, those are obviously super silly things, but getting them, in my case, getting them a good laptop that works fast and good and, you know, helps them be a little bit more happy versus getting frustrated with a slow computer, things like that. Like, those are all little things that I think, you know, add up to what you're saying, which is essentially being a servant leader, thinking long term investing back in your people. And I think it comes back tenfold. And, you know, you mentioned 20% better than you do it. Well, try 10x however you could do it because you're, you've just spent so much time in helping these people. And it also creates like a really mutual respect, especially if you have younger employees. I think everybody wants to be an entrepreneur now. I think I remember growing up, it was cool to be a rapper and athlete. Now it's cool to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, having that mutual respect where like, I joke sometimes and I mean it. I'm like, I'd rather be in your shoes, you know, a Mr. Media Buyer. Like, I'd rather run a Facebook ad than me. I deal with so much stress and this and this. And then vice versa, saying, hey, listen, like, I'll be the left wheel in the car. You be the right wheel. Jack will be the other, you know, back left wheel. And, like, really looking at us as a unit and a car and knowing that I can't do my job without them and they can't do their job without me. And now all of a sudden... I mean, that's the definition of a team, and that's the different definition of a unit, a sports team, and that's not, you know, the player that wants to play quarterback even though he's the left tackle. And I think especially, you know, younger employees and, and uh, you know, within an organization, you know, they see, you know, on Instagram someone driving a Lamborghini and saying, I'm an entrepreneur and how cool it is. And, you know, the reality is, is it, it's not that cool. It's a hell of a lot of hard work. It's a hell of a lot of stress, a hell of a lot of sacrifices. You know, I truly do mean I'd rather be in my shoes sometimes, too. So, anyway, that, that servant leadership and really, like, letting them be the best Facebook ad guy while I can be the best business owner guy, we both theoretically come out on top now because he just gets to focus on that for years and years and years and beat on that crap for tens and tens of hours a week. And I just get to beat on my crap, which is just being a good business owner. And eventually, you know, it comes, compounds in a really big way. It's true. And I, I think that when you talk about the rewards that you're offering people, those rewards really aren't the detail like the computer or the, the dinner or anything. But it's more about the fact that you're, you're there and you want to give those rewards, that relationship that you're building and the, the sense that you appreciate what they're doing. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, maybe some of it came from my motivation too. like, I had a deck manager when I was on my first job. And I was like, I, I just want to like be a cool guy and like, enjoy my day today and let them enjoy their day today. So it wasn't even necessarily like, you know, I want to come make a shit ton of money. I was like, I, I really just want to provide like a happy place so that I actually like being happy all day long. And it's like, it's funny because if you're like, you know, kind of a dick manager or entrepreneur, you're like yelling at your team, like there's no way that's fun for you. Like maybe you get like 
a little short-term ego high on it, but like, you can't tell me that's fun walking in every day versus, you know, like, I'll get messages from my team just like how blessed they are to be here. And I'm just, that's what it's all about, you know? So even if nothing else, you're going to take away performance, money, everything else like that, like, just enjoy your walking into the office or I guess, in the, you know, now, now, you know, being virtual in the office, but even just enjoy things, provide a good lifestyle for the people, you know, you're working with and, you know, they'll serve you right back just as you serve them. They, they will work longer hours. They will work extra hours. They will think about the business on a Saturday night when they're with their friends, you know, and I'm not even asking that from them or expecting it, but that's what happens, you know, and they, and, uh, you know, they will go above and beyond and put a little more care into what they're doing. They won't be watching Netflix while they're working on your stuff. Like, no, 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 we got to, you know, we got a big day on Monday. We got, sorry, sorry, honey, I got I got to hit this hard, you know, and it's like, you don't expect that. You don't ask for that. You don't, you don't yell at that or enforce that. You serve them first, and then, you know, they, they serve you just as well right back. And even if it's your first employee, and even if it's just an assistant or it's a virtual assistant, you know, ask them how they're doing. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned Simon Sinek's Power of Why. You mentioned uh, mentorship. I'm curious, you didn't get to this point where you understood this by bumping your nose up against this and learning everything yourself. I'm, I'm curious what mentorship and what resources you had access to or you valued along the way that have contributed to this for you. Yeah, it's, I think anybody who says, you know, oh, I do this all on my own, I think they're absolutely lying out of their teeth. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, I truly do. I truly believe that. Or they just don't want to share it because I think it's a lie. I really do. If not, then have a person. Books are their mentorship, which is why people said, you know, reading so so important because you're, you're that's your mentor for those 300 pages or whatever it is. So it's a lie. But uh, to, to answer your question, you know, I – at a very young age, you know, a foreign entrepreneur would reach out to people, you know, at LinkedIn, I don't think it was a spam at the time. When I was doing it, you know, I would reach out to someone on LinkedIn that was theoretically, you know, above me, whether it was financially, philanthropically, fitness-wise, whatever area of my life I was trying to improve on, I would reach out to them. And really, the formula was pretty simple. It was, you know, hi, I'm a, I'm a, I really respect what you do because of X, Y, Z level and at a deeper level. And not just, not just, hey, I really, I really think you're, you got some cool pictures. You know, it was like, no, like, I, I really believe in that, you know, the vision that you're doing. I really pride myself on not wasting someone's time like yours. I would love even just a few minutes of your time to pick your brain. I can even pre-send you questions. So essentially the formula was really just like, hey, I look up to you and I'm not going to waste your time because, and, and it's cool in hindsight because I realize now, like, after you make a certain amount of money, another $10, $100, million dollars, all becomes relative, and especially people that, that are very ultra-successful, they don't get the same dopamine hit from making another 500000 another million dollars, as they do seeing someone else, you know, that, that they can see a little piece of themselves, whether it's younger or whatever, or whatever that is, see themselves in your shoes. So I didn't realize this until I got older and I was in more of a mentor role than a mentee role, but I was actually providing more value to the mentor than they were providing to me, even though they were providing it in knowledge, I was providing it in letting them see a little piece of themselves at a more, you know, uh, a raw age. So, so that, that formula of like, hey, I'm not going to waste your time. And then I did it. So when I met with someone or I talked to someone, I actually implemented what the heck they said. That doesn't mean I, I ran around dumb and someone was like, jump off the bridge. I was like, hey, look, me jumping off the bridge. But I at least would, would show like, hey, you know, I weighed out the options of jumping off the bridge. Here's what I did. Here's where I'm at. You know, and for them, it became a massive value because they, they, they were like, oh, my God, not only is this guy – hungry enough to actually reach out to me, but he's actually implementing what I'm saying or putting to action. I feel valued. I feel like, uh, and you wouldn't believe some of the amazing people I've been able to have conversations with or interviews or, or and, and really like turn into mentors, guys that make hundreds of millions of dollars that I, I talk to, you know, every other day. 
And it's from nothing else other than me approaching and being persistent as all hell and then, you know, really not wasting their time at the end of the day. I did not waste their time. And I showed them that I didn't waste their time. And that's why I think I attracted such amazing mentors. I think that's why I feel like I'm, you know, an 80-year-old living in a, you know, you know mid-20-year-old body because I really have downloaded what these guys' life have been like and they've passed on decades of knowledge and millions of dollars of learnings into my head to go out and, you know, carry the, the, you know, the torch to the next level. And that's the value I bring to them is they get to see me succeed and the value, you know, they get to give me is that, is that knowledge. So it really becomes a reciprocal win-win relationship. And looking at a mentor-mentee relationship that way really opened up my eyes tremendously versus like, I'm a leech going to take this guy's value. So now, so I wasn't like, oh, I don't want to follow up with him. I, I think I'm being a pain in the ass. Meanwhile, now I'm like, no, I'm going to help this guy like feel satisfied in his later years of life. He gets to pass on his knowledge because you can't take that with you when you die. He gets to pass that on to someone who can actually make that come to life and he can see a little glimpse of that while he's still alive. Like, I better sure shit follow up with this guy. Otherwise, he's going to die an unhappy life. Like, obviously, being dramatic and silly, but like, that's the type of thought process for now. I wasn't scared to just be persistent as all hell, you know? Hey, if that's the level of drama that it takes to get it to happen, it's amazing. And what I love about that is that you're reframing this notion of going to somebody as a supplicant asking for for a favor versus going to somebody with the benefit of being able to reflect back to them what their life can create in somebody else. A hundred percent. And, you know, a lot of times that, that's unsaid too, right? Like I'm, I'm not going up to the guy and be like, hey, man, you want, you want to feel satisfied in your years? You know what I mean? But, but that... You know that, hey, I'm not going to waste your time type of stuff. Like, hey, here's the traction I've had so far in this subject, or here's why I have such a tremendous interest in it. Uh, you know, I really see you as someone who really is an inspiration in that space. I would die for your time. And then I'm emailing, I'm texting, I'm messaging. And I've even had some mentors, like, test me on it. Like, I remember, you know, one guy who, <laughs> I hope he listens to this, I'll send it to him, he'll probably laugh, I'll tell him to fast forward to this, but I probably fought it three or four times. I shot him a Facebook message, a LinkedIn message. I tried to find a mutual friend that had his number. I texted him. I think it was the wrong number. I re-messaged him again on Facebook. And this was at 11 o'clock at night. He said, be at my house at 6 a.m. tomorrow, and we'll get a workout in, and then you can shadow me for the day. This isn't like when I was like, had my thumb up my rear end. Like, I had a full day busy of stuff, and I was, and I was like, uh, you know, and I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going. And he, he lived an hour away. So, so what I ended up doing is I ended up doing just that. I ended up getting up, driving there on four or five hours of sleep work out with him in the morning, shadow him all day. And he told me at the end of the day, he goes, you know, man, I, I actually didn't think you were going to take me up on that. I really didn't want to fucking work out this morning or get up. <laughs> doing any of that. And uh, man, I got to see this guy do an interview with a uh, head of surgery for a hospital for a $300,000 interview. I'd never been in, I, I don't even think I was making $300,000 at the time. I'm like, holy shit. I get to see him fire people. I got to hear him uh, handle fires. I get to hear him talk to, I think it was the FDA, like just in insane amount I, you know I got blessed with that day but I think the universe works in your favor when you when you when you kind of act that stuff out but to your point you know reframing it and looking at it that way makes it a lot easier to to approach people and then to implement it and then to report back and then to you know to really actually create a value-added relationship and again too I don't, I don't lead with hey do, you know do you want to do you want to feel good about your last years on this planet you know but you know again saying hey I'm going to implement it and then showing it like getting up and and, you know, on four hours of sleep and actually taking action. Like, that's the type of stuff that's addicting for this guy to still help me out all day long and to still be a mentor of mine to this day because I'm the, I'm the kid that hit him up multiple times and then showed up four hours later and worked out with him at 6 a.m. 
when he didn't want to do that. It sounds to me like you're embodying a lot of that in yourself as well, and that part of the why for what you're doing is that you do like that feeling of seeing people grow and being the soil in which they're growing and giving them that inspiration. It, I, I know you've got a public speaking career as well on the side. You know, it's all a give back, right? Like, I don't think anybody on your podcast is just some prime individual looking to get out of credit card debt or fix, you know, whatever it is. And uh, But, it, you know, it's, I had to, you know, great segue to our conversation we just had. Like, I had to listen to so many podcasts, watch so, teach myself so much stuff, read so many books. Like, And it took people giving their time back in order to get this value. And you're absolutely right. This is a very selfish thing I'm doing because... I feel I'm getting more value out of leaving one person listening to your podcast and actually doing something with it. And then me getting a message on Instagram saying, hey, man, you know, I heard you apply this. Like, I made my first hire. Like, you know how fucking high of a dopamine hit that is over, like, <laughs> working for an hour right now and making some more money? Like, that is infinitely better at this stage in my life to receive. And it's like, you nailed it on the head. That's why I'm doing this stuff. That's why I love doing this stuff. That's why I don't ever charge for an interview, a conversation, a speech, public speech. I don't charge anything. Uh, any fees I ever get, I donate back to to, to something because it's you know I had to have people teach me this stuff to get to where I am today. So I, I, I and and you know I selfishly uh, feel really good doing it. You know. Well, that makes sense. And now you're going into the business of putting out these information products that are really going to help people. And I, I know people are going to want to reach out to you and find out more about this. Where can I direct them to find out more about you and about what they could learn from you? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm I'm fairly active on Instagram. It's just my first and last name, and and or just Google my name too, and and reach out to contact on my website. I, like I said, I try to get to everybody's message. It might take me a few days, but I generally I'm able to respond to just about anyone's questions they need. Okay, well we'll definitely putting be putting links to those in the show notes. Is Instagram really your primary outreach? It, it actually is. I mean, semi-purposefully because uh, again, it's it's I'm not monetizing my advice here uh, per se. So I, I, I'm sure I'd have some. Uh, webinar funnel that she opted into four different ways to Sunday if I was trying to monetize anyone helping me. But that's my most leisure way to, to get a hold of me. Yeah. <laughs> that's fascinating. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing all of that. It's an amazing story. I'm looking forward to seeing where this takes you next. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you having me. I had a blast. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.